is the BearCast, presented by Bird Culchin Ford. Bird Culchin Ford has been in Waco since 1936. Ford is the number one selling truck in Texas, 43 years running. The BearCast is also presented by WellMed Medical Management and USMD Health System Dallas. Here's Craig Smoke and Grayson Grundhafer. And welcome into a brand new edition of the BearCast as we enter week five of the college football season here on the Baylor Athletics on Sikkim 365 YouTube page, also on Sikkim365.com. Maybe you're listening to us via the app if you're an Apple user. If that's the case, welcome aboard as well. No matter how you're tuning in, whether live at... 11.15 on Tuesdays, or uh, after the fact, we do appreciate you, and we have another busy hour-plus uh, to talk Baylor Athletics with you this week, as uh, football will take the main stage as usual, but basketball season is starting to approach, and now the Big 12 schedule has been released for both the men's and women's teams. will touch a little bit on those, but not exactly dive deep into the schedule. We have others on staff that can do that at a later date, or we'll have an article up at some point today going over the exact details of the basketball schedule, but that is out, and we will touch on that, like I said, briefly at some point during the next hour plus, but I hope you're doing well. I'm Craig Smoke, and uh, Sikkim365.com, I guess, writer, also uh, 365 Sports Radio, three to six weekdays, joined as always by Garrett Ross, behind-the-scenes producing, and to my left uh, here in studio, Grayson Grunhafer, Director of Broadcasting, Sikkim365. Baylor coming off a 38-6 to loss to the Texas Longhorns in the last meeting between those two programs for the foreseeable future. The Bears now 1-3 and gearing up for their first road trip of the year after a month at home to open the season. And they are heading to Orlando for a first-ever conference matchup with the UCF Knights. So one door closes conference-wise, and another one now opens a week later. And uh, we'll unpack all that came with last week and uh, what's happening this week. But Grayson, how we doing, man? I mean, that was a really, really tough performance to watch. So, um you know, it's been kind of tough to just kind of, you know, sit back and watch that and then kind of understand what happened to Baylor in this game. And I, I know we're going to dive into it, but it, it really was disappointing in the final game against Texas to have a performance like that, just a complete dud. And what I what I actually think will probably be the worst performance Baylor has all year um, as, as far as the scoreboard goes. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it was disappointing. I think everyone can say it was pretty disappointing based on the final results. Yeah, I think that that's a given and that's maybe putting it lightly for some some people, um, there's obviously a lot of pressure building as the losses mount and the performances just don't look that much better. And this one, even if they played better, it was overshadowed by the fact that they were just completely outmatched, outmanned, outgunned, outwhatevered uh, in every way on Saturday. That was just a team that, uh, while they have been within reach and you've even you know finished above them multiple times here in recent years, they're playing in two different parks nowadays. And I think that that was pretty clear. On Saturday, one program going up, one program uh, spinning its wheels and falling back. Uh, And if they're not careful, uh, that could get worse and worse, believe it or not, as bad as the feelings sort of are right now. Uh, It can get worse, and man, there's still eight games left to go. I mean, they're not even halfway through the season yet, but it feels like it's already been kind of a marathon just because of the lumps that they've taken here in the first month. So let's talk Texas. We've got a little bit of recruiting to talk to at some point as well. 
have the mailbag too, uh, and obviously we'll talk UCF, but uh, I think this is mostly just the first half to talk about, quite frankly, because that's where most of the scoring occurred, and so we don't need to go over every single drive of this game, um, but let's just kind of touch on the first half because that's where a lot of the actual action occurred and uh Grayson I mean first things first it was a great crowd uh the crowd showed up I wasn't you know all in on the color schemes and things like that neither was the crowd because by the time it arrived there was a good section of the black um that arrived at least from the vantage point that I had you know the unofficial blackout which by the way the record with those is now uh well we're not going to go back into past times with our brows. The last two they lost the unofficial thir- ones yeah, I'm talking 31 about. 31 to 3 and 38 to 6 well, for K State and There was also one. the t-shirts situation that got the whole ball rolling with blackouts oh, to begin oh, with. TCU. That was also yeah. a blowout. Uh so the unofficial blackouts regardless of where you stand on them have been absolutely atrocious outings every single time that they've occurred. Uh, I mean not even just losses but blowouts and this was the latest example of it. So you know, you had a, a good chunk of people that abided by that. You had a lot of other people in green and gold, and there was a good contingent of burnt orange as well. And, you know, you wonder when the game was announced as a sellout of, like, oh, gosh, is Texas going to overrun the stadium? And that wasn't the case. They had a really good number of people there. They filled out their section. They had the end zone like a lot of visiting upper teams deck. do in yeah. the upper deck. Um, but it wasn't overwhelming by any means. It was a pro-Baylor crowd. People were loud. They were into it. They were ready to rock. Game day seemed to be like it was in a good rhythm as well. Uh, had, you know, Keontae George came back and just had a lot of fun things going on, at least early in that game. And then the game actually happened, and it took a lot of the spirit out of it. But I did think that there was a big-time feel for what was a big-time game for Baylor and uh, it just got wasted, quite frankly. But uh, kudos to everybody that showed up at least that first quarter when it was still relatively competitive because that did feel like a big-time college football atmosphere at McLean, and it's just a shame that it didn't get put to good use. And so let's start here. I mean, how about right out of the gates with this crowd? You get the ball to start things off, and you go three and out, baby, just right out of the gates. Like, let's just fast forward here. Three and out, right out of the shoot. Um, as uh, they're sacked a couple of times, Sawyer Robertson, that is, on the opening drive on second and third down. Uh, they get a false start penalty. I mean, it was, like, comical. Like, let's start as bad as possible in front of this crowd. How about a couple sacks and a penalty to go ahead and force a punt on a three and out? Good news is is that, you know, you would uh, force Texas into punt as well on their opening drive after just six plays. You'd get the ball back, and then you'd punt again. Uh, six plays on that drive, so nothing doing for the offense on the first two series. And then Texas on their second drive, here comes the explosiveness. And that was the story with their offense. You knew coming in, like, they could just hit the big plays, and how would Baylor defend that? And the answer was not very well. Uh, as two plays, 55 yards, Jonathan Brooks had himself a day, the running back uh, from Hallettsville, 40-yard touchdown run. And so two series in for both teams, and Texas is up 7 to nothing. Yeah, and this is just a missed tackle. I mean, Mike Smith had him in the backfield. Tackle for loss, maybe a one-yard gain. Misses the tackle. He gets outside Carl Williams. Easy touchdown. But again, Baylor's issues tackling for since the West Virginia game really last year even I mean you might even be able to go before that but I mean it, it is 
it is so bad, and it has led to so many huge plays for opponents, and this was another one. Like, you can't miss that tackle. And if you are going to miss that tackle, you at least need to slow the dude down. Did not do that. Carl Williams let him get outside. Just, I mean, a really tough one. And what was a actually really good defensive call by Baylor? Like, the play was there. They just didn't make it. Uh, by the way, if you're watching us live 11.15 on Tuesdays, please hit the like and subscribe button. We do appreciate you. Don't ask for that very often, but uh, do want to ask about that occasionally. So if you are watching us live, we do appreciate it. But after the fact, please uh, do that as well. Baylor Athletics on Sikkim 365. So Baylor gets the ball back 7-3, to and they string together a nine-play 70-yard drive, had a big pass to Keetron Jackson. They went for about 40 yards. Jordan Neighbors, we'll talk more about him like as far as a, a personnel note later on. Um, but then you got a pass interference call, so moving the ball down, and then you get into the red zone, and then everything kind of comes to a halt as you're able to get all the way down at one point to the five-yard line where you're facing a third and goal, uh, but Sawyer Robertson gets stuffed, and you have to settle for a field goal. Isaiah Hankins from 22 yards out, so a promising drive uh, gets stuffed there at the end, but you are on the board. It's 7-3, to three, and uh, at that point, uh, the offense at least has put some points on the board, and that would be... One of two scores on the day uh, and one of just two field goals on the day. Yeah, and yet another, I mean, we're going to say missed opportunities for Baylor, but once again, I mean, just they were running into a wall. I mean, they ran the ball three straight times in the red zone, and I understand, like, you you want to run the football. It's easier to run the football. You know, your quarterback in the red zone hasn't been very accurate, and so I get it, but also, like, they were not having success running the ball. You run it three straight times. You end up selling for a field goal. They got, what, three yards or four yards from the time they just decided we're just going to run the ball up the middle or have the QB power play. And yeah, yeah, Sawyer ran for 10, Richardson ran for three, and then Robertson for one, and then Robertson for no gain. Yeah, like So your last three plays went for four yards. In the inside the ten, yeah. and, and so yeah. Richardson was a surprise. I don't think he was expected to play just because his ankle was banged up, but he did play. But he would leave early, so he didn't last very long. He was out by halftime, um, out of business basically, according to Aranda. Re-injured his ankle, but he was surprisingly there at the beginning. I had somebody pop up. I was like, "Hey, Dominic Richardson's back." He's like, "Oh, it doesn't matter if we can't run the ball." I was like, "Dude, I mean, just glad that he's healthy." But yeah. again, it didn't last very long, um, and it didn't matter with the run game. It was man among. Boys, um, Texas has recruited very well. Um, I've made mention, like, NILs definitely come into play as far as the talent gap goes. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, but there's a major talent gap now that's as large as it's ever been between these two teams. And, um, you know, part of that, too, could just be, hey, they're older and Baylor's got guys that they're trying to bring along. But, you know, as I've said, regardless of where you want to point, it was evident on Saturday. Like, Texas, in particularly, like, the up front, the line positions – uh, they were far and away better than, than the Bears on both sides of the ball. But it is rather interesting. I know you bring up NIL, but a lot – I think the biggest thing with Texas is their age now. And really, the well, guys – I mean. But the guys they got wasn't really in the NIL era. Like, Jade Barron was going to be a Baylor Bear until Rule left. Like, he was signed with Baylor. Byron Murphy – Again, not in the NIL era when he signed with Texas. Like, Jalen Ford, not it. Like, these guys were not when NIL started becoming a bigger thing. These were just straight-up wins for Texas before NIL became a big thing. Yeah, but their offensive line was, and yeah, their yeah, quarterback yeah. was. But I'm and, talking about the defense. Like, yeah, but I'm talking in, Yeah, I'm saying like, in general, it was clear there was a talent gap. Yeah. And you can point to the NIL era is what I'm saying. You can also point to the age, like I just yeah. said, because I'm not talking about just strictly the lines. I'm talking just in general, the 
the, there was a talent gap. But on the lines, it was as evident as ever that there was an even bigger talent gap. For sure. That Baylor just wasn't up to task uh, to deal especially, with. But it was more so on the defensive line versus Baylor's offensive line, for sure. Like, it, it just was overwhelming. I mean, Texas was putting three guys down and still creating tons of pressure and getting in the backfield. It, it was uh, very overwhelming, like you mentioned. Yeah, so they trade a couple of punts, and then Texas nine plays, 75 yards, uh, make it look easy. It's 14-3, to three and they're about to start pouring it on, but a 29-yard touchdown run for Quinn Ewers uh, caps off that drive on third and 10 from the Baylor 29. So he goes ahead and takes it to the house, and it's 14-3. Uh, to three. Yeah, and I mean, th- so that first touchdown drive was just the trick play. Xavier Worthy, JT Sanders, and they scored the very next play. So that was unfortunate. Baylor turns the ball over on downs once again. Fourth and two at the Baylor 46. And you haven't ran the ball at all. And now you're going to run the football right at Texas. And that just wasn't working. And Pendergrass got stopped. And like you said, that this is just one of those, you know, you can't have happen. You, you just continue to fall down here. You said 14-3 right where you had the big run by Quinn. And you're just sitting there going, okay, you allowed him to get outside once again. This is a bad defense play once again. Third and 10. You have a chance to force field goal. Can't do it. Quinn gets outside the pocket. I will say... Looking back on the play, I do feel like there was a holding call missed. Doesn't matter. They still would have lost the game. Not making excuses. But that call on the outside where JT Sanders is latched up with Devin Lemire, that was a hold. Like, I I don't know how that's not called at home. But you can see he's outside his jersey. It was an absolute hold. Should have been third and what, 19, third and 20. Um, But, you know, didn't really happen. Yep, no call. uh, And they move on. And Texas scores 14 to 3. Baylor gets the ball back three and out again. Um, as at this point, just you're starting to feel the emotions and all that start to die down, and just the excitement and all of that is really a damper being put on the action when your offense can't move the football to save its life. Uh, an incomplete pass, run for three yards, pass for two yards, force the punt. Uh, Texas gets the ball back, two plays, 42 yards. It's 21 to three. And there's is this the t- trick play, yeah, that I was mentioning earlier. That right there was the trick play by Texas. Yeah, so yeah. Texas on first and 10, Xavier Worthy with a pass for 35 yards to Jatavian Sanders, and then uh, C.J. Baxter with a seven-yard touchdown run on the second play of that drive. And like I said, it's 21-3, to uh, just like that, and it's about to get even worse as this second quarter just completely got away from them. And, um, I mean, this was the game, was the second quarter, basically. Yeah, and I did a little fast-forward ahead, but there was a trick play for Texas, and yeah. then this is where you're running into a wall. And this is after, this is, didn't, they, didn't they try the pass before this themselves, or did Texas try this first? I can't remember exactly. I think Baylor tried the And the Texas, first. like, to put even more insult to injury of, like, ha, y'all did it and failed, right. and so we're going to do it and score, you know, I, set up a touchdown. I think Baylor did it to neighbors. Neighbors caught it, didn't have it, ran out, like, right. five yards. But, yeah, it, so they Sarge tried it. So Sarge dunking on them, basically, at this point. Um, and just going, oh, that, that looked like fun. Let's try that, and let's actually convert. So, bam, 21-3. to three. How does Baylor respond to this at this point as the crowd's barely hanging on by a thread, even though they showed up in mass? Uh, well, they didn't go three and out, but they still ended up punting anyway. Seven plays, 21 yards. They're forced to punt after uh, three or four straight runs. Uh, got, uh, let's see, eight yards. Uh, it was Robertson for two. Richardson for four, Pendergrass for two, fourth and two, Pendergrass runs for no gain at midfield, Baylor turns the ball over, and Texas five plays, 46 yards, one of their longer drives. This took a minute 49, and uh, this ends with Jonathan Brooks after a 
Baylor defensive pass interference call, uh, like because you know Texas needed more help. Uh, but Jonathan Brooks set up uh, at the two yard line after that penalty, and they punch it in, and uh, his big day continues. And it is twenty eight to three, just like that. What was a seven three game after the first quarter is now twenty eight to three, and it's, it's still it's still even going to get worse, not score wise, but um, we'll get to that. Yeah, and I mean the game's over. Yeah, At this point, I, I, you knew the game was over. I mean, you probably could have said the game was over when it's twenty-one to three, but twenty-eight to three, you're like, yeah, okay. Well, this is over. This was fun. Like, I just you could tell Baylor wasn't going to be able to score that kind of points in this game, and mm-hmm. and just in general, like Baylor, what Baylor wanted to do was not working, and what Texas wanted to do was, and that's just that's when you know things. You're in absolute trouble. You're in a terrible situation, and that's what Baylor got themselves in. Down twenty-eight to three, the crowd's completely taken out of the game. It, it again, super disappointing that that second quarter. Texas would actually try to make this a game by fumbling <laughs> on punt returns uh, twice. Uh, this would happen right after this twenty-eight to three lead. Uh, they would fumble uh, the. Uh, the punt from Palmer Williams, Xavier Worthy can't hang on to it. And Garrison Grimes gets what would be two punt return fumble recoveries for him on the day. So it's like players of the game candidates, and it was recovering a couple of fumbled yeah. punts by Texas. Uh, Baylor gets the ball to 21, and they have to settle for a field goal. Uh, so 28-6, to six, uh, the score as Isaiah Hankins is good from 36 yards out. They tried to pass on every down here. Dabney got two yards and then two incompletions trying to find Keytron Jackson and uh, just nothing doing there. So they settled for the field goal. Texas would punt. There's barely any time left. At halftime, that was your score, 28-6. to six. And uh, Baylor would not score the rest of this game. That was it for them. Texas still had a, a couple more to, to put on in the second half. But, uh, yeah, it was basically over at halftime. Yeah, and so there's two red zone trips, and Baylor has six points. We're about to talk about four more in the second half that you just mentioned. Uh, Baylor doesn't score again, so that's going to be a consistent theme here. But just, again, this – so immediate thoughts at halftime was how – and I, I we have to talk about this for a sec, Craig, but – how in the world did Baylor come into this year thinking that their offensive line was good enough for them to not take more transfers? It is one of the most baffling things I've seen all, uh, really the whole year. I just don't understand how you could have come into this season and thought that that offensive line was going to be good enough. When you had opportunities to take multiple more transfers up front to give you more experience, give you more depth at minimum, and, you know, Dave Randa and the staff are saying, oh, well, you know, these guys, when the lights shine, just weren't ready. Okay, well, at least if they weren't ready after game one, you could have replaced them with veterans that you brought in in the transfer portal. I just, I'm extremely baffled by it. I don't understand it at all. And in this game through the first half, you're just seeing they're going, okay, Baylor's not going to be able to run the ball at all. Baylor doesn't have a passing game right now with, you know, Sawyer not playing great football um, and really just in general not having time to throw the ball either. But that that is one thing that I came away from the first half just going, wow, I, I, don't, I can't explain it. Look, man, we talk about the uh, transfer portal and all that during the offseason, but I'm no roster construction guy. I don't pretend to be some X's and O's, you know, uh, uh like knowledgeable type of person so like when they go and get guys I'm just like okay they they know what they're doing you know I gotta trust in them so all you needed was the Barrington brothers okay like if that's what you think like I give the benefit of the doubt to the coaching staff they know the roster better than me but um yeah like that clearly wasn't enough this offseason and not even close to being enough and you know um that's the second year in a row where you go okay like 
you made pretty grave mistakes looking at the roster construction that you can't make up for in season. And so, yeah, there's nowhere to turn to. They probably should have grabbed more guys. Last year, that line didn't necessarily live up to the super high billing that it had, but it was coming off a championship year, and everybody's coming back and all that. Um, and they played well in the end, but weren't as dominant as you thought they would be. And then you lost all those guys and thought that you would just turn around and like, oh, somehow this could be as good or better, and it's nowhere close. Like, they can't do anything up front against a team like Texas. For I don't know how they're going to fare in the rest of the Big 12, but it, this was like this was two different leagues playing against each other, basically. Yeah, I mean, last year's team went on the road to Oklahoma and ran for like 250 yards, came here against Kansas, ran for 250 yards, ran all over quite a few teams, ran all over TCU. Like, if that offense line played Texas State, Baylor's run for 250 yards against Texas State. That is the difference right now in, in this team, and it, it just is, again, it's very shocking. Well, here's the big disconnect for me, and then we got to run through this here, but... Um, the part that I'm very puzzled about and where I think the big disconnect is is that there are most people, I think Mac Rhodes, fans, media, what you know, whatever else you want to lump in there that feel like, um, you know, last year happened and that stunk and that was bad and, like, this year had to be better. And I feel like on the other side of things, Aranda and the staff are operating with the idea of they've just got, like, free reign to have all this time to develop guys. And it's like, no, you need guys to win right now. Like, mm-hmm. you can't. Like, it's great if you go get that guy who's going to turn into something, Corey Gordon or somebody, in a couple of years. But you need to win, like, right yeah. now. You don't have a couple of years to have the O-line finally situated. No. You, you can't afford that. So I think that's where there's this big, like, gap of um, see, not seeing the, the, the same picture the same way. And um, There is, but, yeah. but also, like, even Art Browse did this where it was like, Offense linemen didn't start to like their third year on campus and you gave them time to develop. Right. Baylor's starting two guys who have only been on campus for a year or yeah, two no. years. And and then you have Gavin Byers who's been on the team for a long time and you kind of know what you got with him, but they had opportunities here to go out and add more talent and more experience specifically, and they did not. It's yeah, very it's, disappointing. It's, it's puzzling seeing the product out there as of how they did not feel like there was more to be done there yeah. for sure, um, especially when you're running for – you know, single-digit yards at one point during this game. So second half, uh, Texas opens the half with a field goal as they're close to scoring their final points now at this this stage. Uh, six plays, 55 yards, and uh, trying to find Jatavian Sanders, who had a big day again, can't uh, complete the pass. And so Burt Auburn with a 37-yard field goal. And then uh, Baylor actually drives down and uh, gets into um, – you know, uh, into uh, Texas territory, uh, get all the way down after some completions to Jordan Neighbors and Hal Presley. And Monterey Baldwin actually had a pretty big day at a big 55-yard gain here, got all the way down to the four-yard line, and they can't punch it in. Um, Run for no gain, run for no gain, pass incomplete, and then Sawyer Robertson on fourth and four, intercepted by Jalen Ford at the five-yard line, and Texas gets the ball back, and uh, no points there for the Bears. What does Texas do? They go score their final points of the day, turning that interception into a 95-yard drive that would take three and a half minutes off the clock and end with Quinn Ewers to Xavier Worthy for 21 yards, touchdown 38-6. to And then uh, that was, I mean, we don't really, I think, even need to go over the rest of the game because there was like another fumbled punt and there was a turnover on downs and Texas misses a field goal and then another turnover on downs by the Baylor offense. And that was the game. But uh, 38-6, to your final score. 
um, as uh, Ewers finds worthy. Yeah, and I mean, Dave Randa mentioned this. They're not running the ball effectively in the red zone, and their quarterback is not decisive and accurate enough in the red zone. And we saw that with this interception. We've seen it throughout the year, honestly, up to this point since they lost Blake Shapen. And now, I mean, you look at it and you go, okay, so they had six trips to the red zone. Six of them in this game. Mm -hmm. They scored six points. Yeah. That is just, I mean, what in the world? Like, that? that's not going to get it done against anyone. And, yeah, you can sit here and say, and I, I tweet about, you know, there's another missed opportunity for Baylor. There's another one. Because it was third and long, Texas converting a bunch of them. And not just converting. I mean, we're talking like 51 yards for Jonte Cook, a 30-yard a run for Quinn Ewers for a touchdown. Like, it was big plays on third and long that they were allowing. And then conversely, Baylor unable to score in the red zone. Or else, you know, I'm not saying – Baylor would not have been in this game. Baylor would not have won this game. Let me be clear on that. But Baylor probably could have scored 20 points in this game had they just done – anything with what Texas gave them. Yeah, I said in the post-game little reaction deal that at best, like if they convert, it's like 38-24. to Yeah. I mean, they're still losing by a couple touchdowns at best. So it's not like, hey, if this had happened, Mm -hmm. then they were – no, like at best they just make the score look better, but it's still a blowout. And it was gift-wrapped by Texas dropping two punts. Like I'm not sitting here saying Baylor was dominant or anything, but 38-24 sure does feel a lot better than 38-6 to by the end of the day. Yeah, so Texas scores is 38-6, to and then uh, Baylor would recover another fumbled punt uh, eventually, and they would get it all the way down to the Texas five-yard line, and then – would turn it over on downs again. Um, Sawyer Robertson sacked on back-to-back plays, and then Texas got the ball back. They ended up missing a field goal, could have added some points. Baylor gets the ball back again, 12 plays, 60 yards, gets it all the way down to the Texas 20, and uh, this is R.J. Martinez at this point, and turn it over on downs again. So he has just a bunch of, in the red zone, turn it over on downs with Three times, or uh, three times, including an interception. Yeah, twice on downs, one interception, interception and field then goals, and then field two goals, field goals. Yeah, and then two field goals. So six times. So was that two field goals? Turn it over on downs, two interceptions. That's five. Uh, uh, what am I missing here? No, no, no. Uh, end of game. So turnover on downs, turnover on downs. There's the two. Then you had the interception. The then you the had game. the two field goals. That's five. There was one more where they... Yeah, the end of the game, they finished oh, at the yeah. four-yard line. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and could not punch it in. So there you go. There was the game. Complete domination by Texas. First quarter was the only competitive part of this game uh, when it was 7-3. to three. But beyond that, they blew it open in the second quarter and then just kind of coasted in the second half for the most part. It even gave Baylor some opportunities and Baylor shut out uh, in the second half, despite multiple trips down into the red zone and did not muster a single touchdown on the day. So there you go. Um, that was about as rough as you could have imagined it to be. And a great send-off for UT, their final trip to McLean, and not at all what you hoped for if you were the Bears, who ended up rushing for 60 yards total on the day. Um, Sawyer Robertson was getting sacked all over the place and then had some you know rough moments, but... Ends up 20 of 35 for 203 and an interception because, again, they didn't score a touchdown. Uh, your leading rusher was RJ Martinez on just three carries. That's how bad the run game was. Um, and then, you know, you actually got some yardage out of the receivers, but I always think of Phil Bennett of like, yards don't matter. Yards don't say, and you get 700 yards and still lose the game because what matters is scoring points, and that's what they did not do. So 300 yards through the air, but it's about as empty of a 300 yards as you'll ever find. Wow. So, uh, yeah, there you go, and now one and three, closing the roads, uh, the homestand in the opening month, and 
now turning their attention to Orlando. So before we get into Orlando, let's talk about what Aranda talked about after the game and, and on Monday. Um, you know, I don't want to get much into like the psychological side of this and like what they need to do because we've talked about that ad nauseum, and it's fine when he says it because you know that's he's at the heartbeat of the team. But I don't really feel like at this point we really need to diagnose and try to break down their psyche or anything like that um, because it's a lot of the same things we've already talked about. I don't think the energy levels were as much of an issue this week. I think that was all there. I think they could have fed off the fans. They just could never play well enough to really utilize any of that. Um, but he did, you know. Um, Mentioned after the game, a lot of this is still just execution. And that's not just players. I mean, that goes for coaches. That goes for the whole meal deal. Um, But we've heard that week after week after week now. So that's clearly an issue. Uh, But he also did, I guess, in a bright spot, mentioned on Monday, uh, they're going to have potentially several guys back this week. Uh, Blake Shapin is day-to-day. Um, granted, you know, he can maybe make some better decisions in Sawyer, but are you going to block for him any better than you're blocking for Sawyer Robertson? Um, but Blake Shapin is close to coming back. Just don't know if it'll be this weekend, uh, but he's starting to get worked back into practice. Um, also announced that Jordan Neighbors has made the full-time move to wide, uh, to running back from wide receiver. We saw him get a couple carries on Saturday, but that's now official. Dominic Richardson is feeling good, he says. So it sounds as though he'll be available to play as well. Um, And then you had, on the defensive side of things, uh, getting a couple cornerbacks back with Tevin Williams and also, um, who am I missing there? Tevin Williams and Reggie Bush. And Reggie Bush are scheduled to come back. And then on the defensive line, should be getting close to having Jarrell Broxton. Boykins. Uh, Boykins, yeah. sorry. Jarrell Broxton, the old offensive lineman. Uh, Jarrell Boykins uh, is working himself back into shape, and so he should be coming back uh, soon here as well. And also had on the off- or on the defensive line, uh, you had... Um, Trey Emery. Trey Emery, gosh yeah. almighty. Um, Trey Emery coming back. So Trey Emery, Jarrell uh, Boykins up front should be coming back soon. Tevin Williams, Reggie Bush in the secondary. Jordan Neighbors has moved to running back. And Dom Richardson feels good. And Blake Shapin is day-to-day. That is basically your your wrap-up as far as personnel guys that he mentioned on Monday that uh, could be giving them some reinforcements. Right. And Devin Lemire played against Texas, which was big. He was questionable going into that. He played okay. He had like nine tackles. The stats were good. The peripherals, not as great. Um, but he, it's big to have him back. He's clearly a leader for this defense. They need him if they're going to have any shot at making a run later in the year. And, and just honestly, just being better on defense because they've been absolutely terrible uh, at times this year. Um, and then the other one, Isaiah Dunson was out this week. I'm expecting that to be long-term. Okay. Um, for him. So uh, getting Tevin Williams back is big. He's been out the last, what, three weeks now. Um, so that's a big deal. And then I did want to mention, Craig, I know you mentioned the sacks, and I know that it is scary based on what we saw against Texas and Texas State. Um, but keep in mind, they have given up eight sacks this year. Five were this week to Texas. So if they just come back to where they were and, and kind of how they were trending it shouldn't be as bad as it was, but my goodness, they were they were they were terrible. And also, part of that is on Sawyer. I know no one wants to put the blame on him because yeah. they did get beat up front, but you got to get rid of the football. At yeah, times. sure. Yeah, no, he's not without fault as well. I mean, I will say, give him a little bit of an extra. Like you're working with injury, but yeah, no doubt, you got to get rid of the football. You can't throw picks at the the goal line, which has now become a, a habit. 
uh, as opposed to like, oh, that happened one week. That's now happened a couple times where they've cost themselves points throwing interceptions down there in the end zone. So uh, that's something he's got to got to be mindful of. But, um, yeah, they're getting some reinforcements back now. He didn't guarantee all those guys I just mentioned will be back, but they're, they're getting close to some could be back this week. So uh, five to seven guys in total on both sides of the ball. And uh, we'll see who actually suits up for UCF. Um, but, yeah, um, that'll help a little bit, but it's not going to answer all of their woes by any means. So let's talk UCF uh, real quick here and just what stands out to you about this trip to, uh, to Orlando to, um, you know, go on the road for the very first time and to take on a, an opponent we haven't seen since the Fiesta Bowl, the infamous Fiesta Bowl, which they will be celebrating in Orlando this week. And that's a, a fun little aside for fans that will be going there. You'll get a reminder of the uh, Fiesta Bowl, but that's part of what got UCF into the Big 12, you know, in, in the long, long way, uh, uh, in so many ways. So, uh, yeah, your thoughts on the Knights as they come uh, – uh, up next on the schedule, good old Blake Bortles, yeah. right? Yeah, yep. leading that Fiesta Bowl team. I, you know, I look at this UCF team, and I don't think they're going to have John Rice Plumley back. It seems like he's still a week or two away, based on what Gus Malzahn said. Um, just not quite there yet. And so I think they're going to be dealing with Timmy McLean, which actually is a pretty funny story because McLean ends up at UCF because he actually lost the starting job at USF to Gary Bohannon last year. So he transferred to UCF, became the backup there. He'll be the starter long-term for them in the future. But he's had to play a couple games here. And he's been pretty good. You know, against Villanova, that's an FCS team, so I'm not going to take too much away from that. But against K-State, he was able to hit on some explosive plays. Um, They got talented receivers that they're going to try to utilize and spread out the defense while really focusing on running the football. They really want to run the ball. Uh, They're in the top three in the nation rushing-wise, but obviously a big part of that was with John Rice Plumlee in the first two games of the year. Um, In general, though, a key for Baylor is going to be slowing down the big plays, which they have not been able to do this year, especially in the past game. Um, UCF wants to hit explosives, just like Texas did, just like Texas State did to some extent. Um, so that's going to be something that they're going to have to monitor, but they are getting an opportunity to play a backup quarterback, a backup quarterback that was just sacked four times on the road against Kansas State. Um, in a you know That Kansas State ended up winning by 13, I think, UCF scored with three seconds left in the game to make that look a little bit closer. Um, But in general, I think UCF's a good team. I don't think they're a great team. This is a winnable matchup for Baylor, as winnable as they're really going to get you know, throughout the year as, you know, there's a couple worse teams and you might get them at home. But when you look at UCF, like this is a fringe bowl team. This is like a seven win team in my eyes. And I I think Baylor should be able to get in there and potentially uh, get some things done, especially against UCF's defense, which has not been that great so far this year. Yeah, I think they're better than given credit for, but this is very much an offensive team as far mm-hmm. as, like, their their – I mean, it's a Gus Malzahn team, so their specialty is on the offensive side. They are not full strength, as you mentioned, because Plumlee was hurt a couple of weeks ago. They do have a stud receiver in Kobe Hudson, uh, who is definitely somebody that Baylor's going to have to account for. He's off to – he's got nearly 500 yards already through the first month of the season uh, receiving. So he's a guy that you uh, need to have your eye on as far as their big-time playmakers. But, I mean, they, they can run pretty well, but it's not like – yeah, it's not uh, the Texas offense uh, explosiveness-wise, but they can hit on the explosive plays, and that's something that if you make them work for it, that's where it's going to – 
be in Baylor's best interest is to make that offense have to sustain drives. Um, but if you give up the explosives, then, yeah, all bets are off here. Exactly. And, I mean, running game-wise, R.J. Harvey is a good running back for them. Timmy McLean can run a little bit, but Harvey has 283 yards, five touchdowns. And then Richardson is kind of their speedy back. You'll see him when he gets through the hole. Very nice burst. So he's a good player as well. well Baylor's going to see both of them. Uh, this week in this matchup. Defensively, though, UCF, they're 44th in scoring defense in the nation, but I, I do think that's pretty fake. Uh, they've played Villanova, FCS team, Boise State, who's 76th in scoring, and Kent State, who's 127th. I don't think they're very good defensively. We just saw what Kansas State did to them, um, and what Kansas State did to them was run all over them. They averaged seven yards per carry, ran for 281 yards. Um, DJ Giddens was just, I mean, absolutely unstoppable in that matchup. So, in general, I mean, if Baylor's ever going to be able to run the football on the road this year, it's going to have to start this week. This is a prime opportunity for them to run the ball. UCF is okay at getting after the quarterback, not elite. They have nine sacks this year. I think that's like 60th in the nation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in general, like, Baylor should be able to turn around and hand the ball off. They should have enough time and give enough protection to the quarterback, which should allow the passing game to at least have some success. And Will Howard had success this week um, for the Wildcats. So something to keep in mind, I do think Baylor's going to have a great opportunity to win this game if Blake Shapin does play. Um, If he does not, I think, you know, you're probably going to see more of the struggles that we've seen from the early part of the year. Yeah, I mean, uh, they might be a defense that you can run on, but that doesn't mean that you'll be able to run on them. And, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's an opportunity there, but the proof will be in the pudding. Don't Mm -hmm. give them the benefit of the doubt at this stage that they're just going to line up and be able to do that with what we've seen. So, yeah, um, there's a weakness, if you will. Um, But, yeah, this team team gets no more benefits of the doubt. Uh, So, yeah, we'll see how they fare there. But, yeah, UCF. Open the year, big win over Kent State. Uh, edged Boise with a walk-off field goal in week number two out on the road there on the blue turf. Uh, beat up on Villanova. And then last week, that scrap with K-State, which is actually a pretty close game. It looked like, oh, my gosh, they're going to – like, K-State was injury, you know, bitten. And you thought, okay, they're not exactly 100%. That game was close early on. And eventually, K-State did uh, pull away and get the double-digit victory. But uh, UCF scrappy, man. And they don't – like, they don't – they're not one of those teams that's going to be intimidated or anything like that and it's going to be a raucous atmosphere that Baylor rolls into and you know I wrote like maybe it's a good thing to be somewhere else other than home but you know you say that and then you go walking into a stadium that's going to be as loud and as raucous and as just ready to go and you know if this young team or whatever can't handle the emotions at home or do like how are they going to fare on the road is is a huge question mark to me like are they one of those that like they actually thrive on the road mm-hmm. which would be kind of weird for a young inexperienced team happened last year yeah or yeah. is it going to be a team that you know just the struggles continue or compounded by the fact that oh they don't even have the home crowd behind them at this point I don't know. That's that's the mystery that we'll learn a little bit more about this weekend. Yeah, for sure. One thing I do want to mention that I, I think is of note, UCF's FBS opponents. So I'm not counting Villanova, and I'm not going to count Long Island for Baylor. They're 6-6 six and six this year, the teams that they've played. Baylor's three teams that they've played, so far their FBS level are 11-1. and one. So just keep that in mind when you're talking about quality of competition that they've had to go against, the type of, you know, environments they've had to play, you know, against, you know, these teams that are really, really good up front. Uh, Texas State, you know, whatever. I know people are going to say they're terrible. They're still 3-1. and one. 
Baylor shouldn't have lost to them. It still was inexcusable, but they are a better team than many thought starting the year, and we know what Utah and Texas are at this point. Yeah, I mean, being 1-3 and three is not a... I mean, it's a shock because you thought at worst they would be 2-2. Two and two. It's that Texas State game that kind of yeah. ruined everything, and that put them off on the wrong foot right out of the gates, and they've been behind the eight ball ever since then. Had they beat Texas State and then they lost to Utah and Texas, nobody would be blinking as much of an eye as they are right now, but because they lost to Texas State... That just made you look even deeper, and then you looked at just the style in which they played overall, and just kind of the empty answers that you get after the fact, and it's like, it all is a recipe for just feeling bad about the direction of things, and so yeah, that Texas State game, that really just right out of the gates shot them, they shot themselves right in the foot. They did. Um, and, and put themselves in a, in a bad spot that they're still trying to dig out of, and now you're going to the road, you're going on the road, and you gotta play UCF, who you know, is a beatable team, as you point out. But, again, they're going to be so geared up with first Big 12 home game and 10th anniversary of the Fiesta and Baylor's struggling, and it's an opportunity for them to, you know, move to 5-0, and I mean, or, four, excuse me, 4-1 and and get their first Big 12 win. And so, yeah, man, uh, Bears better be ready to go. Better have them strapped up in Orlando at 2.30 on Saturday, that's for sure. Definitely. It's a it's a big one for Baylor. I think it's, you know, as you mentioned, all the things that are going for UCF, all the things they're going to be excited about. I think Baylor should be equally as disappointed and upset and ready to go for this game. I mean, if you can't get up for a game when you're one and three, you're going on the road for the first time, then, I mean, you're probably not going to get up for any game the rest of the way. Probably not. This would be a great, uh, you know, you can't keep every week being a rallying point or every week like, all right, well, this is the week that we're going to get it all together. But them going on the road and this change of pace, like I am very curious to see how they perform and uh, if there is a sense of urgency Mm -hmm. because that has been a big phrase that, uh, you know, along with execution or lack thereof have been huge talking points. So there should be a sense of urgency this week with this team. I think you got some of that early last week, but just not, I mean, that just got so sideways in the second quarter. Yeah, and, and they were overmatched in that game, but I do want to say this team does need Blake Shapin back oh, yeah. in the worst way. Yeah. Like, like, they absolutely do, and people can say, oh, he's not going to make infinite amount of difference. He can't correct everything. So true. But I think if Blake Shapin's playing like he did against Texas State, this team is far better than they have been in the early part of the season. All right, before we get into the mailbag, uh, you had a recruiting note you wanted to touch on here. Yeah, so Baylor uh, got... More unfortunate news. Uh, They missed out on Fort Bend Marshall four-star safety Josh Lair. Um, His final three were Baylor, Texas, and Washington. He had eliminated Texas a couple weeks uh, before making this decision. So it was really Baylor versus Washington in a head-to-head situation. Uh, He took his official visit last weekend to Washington and then made his decision immediately after that, choosing the Huskies over the Bears. So a big miss here. Um, Baylor brought him in on an official visit. Baylor's been really good when they've gotten guys to take official visits. They've landed most of those guys when they've gotten that situation, but unable to here, and now they're going to have to pivot in a new direction um, as this class is kind of at a standstill point right now as they're kind of trying to wait on more decisions to be made and then obviously trying to evaluate talent going into the end of the season when they can take guys on more official visits before the signing day. 
And at some point, we'll have to talk about the losses and the question marks about the future and how those play into recruiting and yeah. decisions and stagnation and things like that because that's also what they're going to start facing here pretty soon as well, if not already. Um, so thank you for that note. Um, and we would, if we had like free reign to talk about whatever for however long, dive into the basketball schedule, but we just simply do not have time uh, with other shows that have to, to get on air and things like that. Um, but we did at least get, before we, we close out with the mailbag here, we did at least get a little bit of an update on um, basketball with the, the full schedules for both, but uh, a note on when the Foster Pavilion will host its first game. So I did want to at least pass that along, um, that the men's basketball team is expected to open at the Foster Pavilion on January 2nd against Cornell in a non-conference game. Um, and then we got the schedule that came out, and that says that most likely their first uh, opponent um, when it comes to playing at the Foster Pavilion, they had said it looked like it might be January 3rd, but in fact it looks like it's going to be January the 9th against BYU will be the conference opener for men's basketball. So Cornell on January 2nd, likely the first men's basketball game at Foster Pavilion. And then a week later, January the 9th, looks like that will be the first home Big 12 game against BYU uh, at Foster Pavilion. And then I did not, uh, if you would uh, bear with me here, the women's side of things, I know that the projection was that they were going to open up Big 12 play. Uh, let's see here. Um, where did that go? Because they're, they're playing On their January first game the right after. And it's a, their first Big 12 game will be at Foster Pavilion, I believe. Yeah, so the women would be, it looks like their official... Internet is want to cooperate. Would be on January the third is look what it looked like there, theirs was going to be, but I can't pull the schedule. It, it'll now. be against TCU. Okay, at Foster Pavilion, January third. Okay, so there you go with that. Those are the Foster Pavilion updates. And again, this conference schedules are out. It looks like that last month for the men's going to be a murderer's row, uh, based on what I just glanced and looked at. But like the last five games mm-hmm. are all killers. If I uh, if I saw what I saw correctly there, um, but there will be more time to unpack that. Yeah, uh, Houston. At TCU, KU at home, Texas at home, and at Texas Tech. Those are the final five weeks of the men's schedule. So that'll be brutal. Uh, But, man, exciting to see that. And, uh, again, more unpacking will be done over on the website where there's much more time to get into all those things and get into the details. But uh, we'll get into it at some point if we have a little bit of time in a a future podcast. Uh, But let's get to the mailbag here. Scotty B., how much better do you think the run game for Baylor's offense will do this game when compared to Texas? I would hope that it's better than last week. I mean, UCF gives up 158 yards on the ground per game. So, I mean, again, if Baylor can't run the football against UCF, they're going to be, they're probably going to lose. I mean, they have to be able to run it some and hopefully a lot better than the Texas game. They, they were running into a wall for most of that game. And no, I'm not going to count the final nine minutes of the game where they had garbage time runs. Like they, on base downs, when they had to run the football, they could not run the football at all. And when I say at all, I'm talking like a yard per carry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they didn't crack 100 yards rushing in this game. And uh, that's... That's bare minimum. Um, you would like more like 200-plus yards rushing in this game, and I think that that's what you should shoot for and aim for, if not a lot more than even that. But, uh, yeah, beggars can't be choosers, but it, they better see an uptick in the rushing performance this week. And if not, then, 
I mean, we're just going to keep diving lower and lower until yeah. we finally hit bottom here. But if there's anything similar to last week, then that is sound the alarms, in my opinion. Um, things are not going to get any better throughout the rest of conference play. So, Scotty, like double what they had last week at minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, at minimum. Overall, Minion, while I'm frustrated with our performance this season, wouldn't firing uh, CDA, removing staff, probably losing players and recruits set us back further next year. I would think giving the staff another year, strategically cleaning the roster and hitting the portal would give us a better shot at winning more games. What are y'all's thoughts? Thank you. I appreciate y'all's times. Well, thank you, overall minion. We appreciate you as well. I mean, I agree with you completely, but they have to do the things that you just mentioned. Like, it hasn't happened. Like, you have to go in evaluate your roster and decide what's best for your roster, who can actually play, who's going to be a factor during their time at Baylor. And if they're not, then you got to move on. You got to make tough decisions. You got to find transfers from the portal. Like this isn't like how it has been where you just build your program through high school recruiting. It's not like that anymore. You have to go out. You got to bring in talented transfers, take shots here and there with guys who are maybe highly rated, but didn't play at a big school and want an opportunity. You got to be able to take those opportunities and try to get those type of guys on your roster. So yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It makes the most sense to keep uh, Dave Randa and then try to build and change their approach. But it, it it took a change this year, but needs to take an even bigger change next year, in my opinion, if they want to reach uh, their goals. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is how many more coaches are you going to change? They've hit almost every position at this point, um, whether by choice or not. Like, Juice Johnson wasn't by choice. But, you know, they've changed coordinators on both sides of the ball already. So you could change coaches again, but you've already done that. You strategically cleaned the roster last year, and it's amounted to nothing really different. Um, so you could put it in their hands of like, yeah, go clean up the roster, but we thought that they did that this past offseason, and it's not the it case. It wasn't enough. It yeah. wasn't enough. So, like, you just entrust that they'll do that again, I guess, and just this time for real, though, we've got enough offensive linemen. Um, but I'm with you. Like, I do think that it's set up to where they do need time. I just don't know that you have time, though, because of – just like how far are you going to fall back and like what do you risk if it doesn't still work out in the long run like that's the thing but that the on the flip side of like you don't know that like go let's go hire Jeff Trailer that's not a guarantee that you're going to be any better or GJ Kenny that's not a guarantee that you're going to be any better necessarily so they're in a weird place man i mean yeah. they really are where Aranda could use more time but i think because of like because of how it's looked the fans are just so checked out of it that that's the problem yeah. is is that the fans like if you tell them okay just another year is what and and that's where i think that the big hurdle is is that the buy in is just not there anymore at this point it's perception yeah. because of what happened and yeah. and it's it's really frustrating because i mean you you got to remember like that this team won a big 12 championship less than 2 years ago right i mean it, it's not like they haven't won football games and last year they were really competitive but yeah this year it's been really tough and i you know i am kind of of the opinion that if you're firing if dave rand if they come out and they play like they did against texas the rest of the year you have to make a change there's no doubt about it in my eyes but if they're competitive throughout the rest of the year and maybe the end result and record doesn't end up where you want it to be, I don't think that this staff should leave. I think there are reasons to still be optimistic about them being able to change and turn over the roster. And that's the, the decision that Mac Rhodes will eventually have to come to. And I don't know all the details about buyouts and things yeah. like that either. That, that'll come into play. But I'm with you. Like They probably need more time, but I just don't know that you're in an era where you can really afford that much more time given the direction that they're going. Um, so that's, that's going to be the big puzzle to figure out. 
Masterpiece MPH, Pierce MPH, why are we just now seeing some of Armani Winfield? He had three receptions, 42 yards versus Texas, which is more than some guys who have seen more playing time like Cameron and Burton. Thanks, guys, for answering our questions, hoping for a better outcome versus UCF. Well, thank you, Master Pierce. Um, Sorry, I'm – where is that one? Oh, oh, okay. Um, Yeah, you know, I think the thing with Armani was he was coming in for garbage time. And you got to remember, like, he plays outside receiver. So he's behind Hal Presley and Keetron Jackson as the starters. And in my eyes, that's okay. I think those two guys have proven themselves to be pretty good, especially Keetron. Um, But I do think they need to find a way to get him on the field. I mean, I love Josh Cameron and the things that Josh can do and bring to the table at times. But Armani, there is something that I do think you could tap into as far as his ability to make plays down the sideline, his ability to create you know, easier throws with his talent. I do think that he should get opportunities, more opportunities than he has gotten. Um, And I also, you know, the Burton thing all comes down to the fact that Monterey Baldwin just has not played well. That's why he's playing. Like, let's just be real with the situation here. This isn't about, you know, Burton being just unreal. Like, he's played hard, but Monterey has just been so inconsistent and unreliable, and that's why he's playing. That's the only reason why he's playing. Monterey did show up last week, but he still had some drops. Like, that's still something that rears its ugly head. And, yeah. There and- was one that he that should have been like a 15-yard gain that Sawyer was so late on, and people are saying, oh, you still got to catch it. Okay, but the ball should have been out five right. yards it's- earlier. All of this is a combination of things. This isn't like, well, that's just this guy. It's it's all a combination of things. But Monterey definitely had his bounce-back game, and it showed you, like, it wasn't going to matter against Texas, but it can matter against UCF. Mm -hmm. It can matter against everybody else on the schedule. If he can do what he did and just add a little bit more, and they can play better as a team. Um, but they they need more of that for sure. Uh, Bearcats, what do you need to see against UCF to show that Baylor can still put together a bowl-eligible season? They need to win. I mean, well, I they mean, have to yeah. win to do I that. I mean, if you want a bowl eligible season, they absolutely have to win one of the next two. No question about it. They have to win one of the next two. You could argue they have to win both. You absolutely yeah. could argue that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, because at this point, they have to go five and three. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, five and three. Five and three. You still have Houston and Iowa State on the schedule at home. And, and Can you score against yeah. Iowa State? <laughs> and West Virginia, right. they are looking better. I mean, there, there's a lot of... We need to see the run game. Let's start yeah. there. We need to see a run game that actually is productive and actually is, like, manhandling or, you know, dictating the... Uh, the, the battles up front yes, to winning. some extent. Yeah. Uh, we definitely need to see that. We need to see smarter decisions in, t- in terms of taking care of the football and making tight throws and doing those types of things. We need to see a healthy Blake Shapin probably too. Probably need that for some of the things that we've mentioned. Uh, but definitely I'd start with the run game. Uh, that's going to be a, a big one. And then on the defensive side, I mean, just you can't give up a bunch of explosive plays to UCF. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make it sound so simple, but truly running the football on offense, have to do that and then not give up explosives on defense. You have to do that that and that's kind of where I start yeah that that's where I'm at too I mean I honestly didn't think the defensive line even played bad this weekend I thought they were fine they gave up two big runs to Quinn who's not a runner it just was you know it was like game situation type thing the Brooks one was a missed tackle by a linebacker but in general I felt like the defense line has actually they've picked it up since the Texas State game yeah, so Bearcats, if they can't run the ball against the Knights and if they're giving up like three, four, five touchdown drives that are like three plays in a minute and a half, then, I mean, it's all the same that it was this week and the week before and the week before, and that's going to be really disappointing and, and not bode well for the remaining part of the schedule. So, yeah, those are the two areas that I really look at. 
Ginger Bear, even when gifted an opportunity to score, our team struggles to find its way into the end zone. Over four games this season, we've averaged two touchdowns per game. Two touchdowns per game. I should add, yeah, red zone execution should be another area that uh, maybe Bearcats you'd be looking for in this next game as well, as if they get down to the red zone six times and walk away with two field goals against UCF, that would be awfully concerning. So, yeah, let's throw red zone execution into that mix as well from the previous question. But uh, from Ginger Bear, one, how can Grimes adapt the scheme and play calling to account for our poor O-line? Why haven't we seen significant improvement the past three games? I mean, the first thing that I would say is, I mean, two of the three games are probably against two top ten defenses. Yeah, like, Utah and Texas are pretty it, salty. I just so. think people are just forgetting that when talking about this offense. And you're having to do it with a backup quarterback who has not played great even against Long Island, has not played great. And so a big part of this, Dave Randa mentioned it, quarterback play as far as, you know, when you see it, you got to throw it. Like, you got to make these decisions quicker and process things quicker. That's not happening. And in the red zone, things speed up even more. You got to be able to see it. You got to be able to make the throw. They haven't been able to do that. Secondly, they haven't been able to run the football like you mentioned. So, Sure, it's in theory you can say, how do you adapt to a poor offensive line by calling plays? Well, if your quarterback's not getting the ball out quickly, making accurate decisions, and then you can't run the football, and then you can't protect the quarterback, it's going to be very hard to score, regardless of scheme. Is Grimes gone as OC if we continue to average two to three touchdowns per game and end the season with a losing record? Yeah, I mean, if you two to three touchdowns per game, yeah, you're if probably going coming three and back, nine. Then he's going to have to do something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're going three and nine or four and eight, and your offense is scoring, you know, fifteen points per game, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I think you know you can't change defensive coordinators again. Uh, you just did that, and. Um, yeah, I, I think it all boiled down to how the rest of the year goes. Uh, but yeah, if they're averaging 15 or 14 points a game offensively, then something's got to give. And if it's not going to be the head guy, then it's got to be the alternative. And I, I don't want to start calling for jobs here, but yeah, they just simply can't muster that little every week and expect to be anywhere near where they want to be as a program. And, and they won't get recruits if that's the offense. And, they, yeah, it, it'll just be – it'll be hard to do much of anything. So we got to roll through a bunch of these here. Useless Kim degree of shape and plays against UCF. Does his ability in the passing game have the potential to expose, hurt the UCF secondary? Please say yes. I need some good news going into this weekend. Yes, I, I do think it – there's a great opportunity for that to happen. Will Howard threw for only 255 yards, but a big part of that was they ran for 281. Mm-hmm. Like, they were running all over uh, UCF. And I think the big thing here is that if UCF gears up to try to stop Baylor from running the football, that's where you'll start to see shape and really make a bunch of throws and potentially complete some explosives. Bears 224, if y'all were a Rando, what would your priority be moving forward to get your team on track for next year? Do you open up to firing and hiring new coaches? Do you hammer the portal hard? What's y'all's plan if you're a Rando? Thank you for doing these mailbags, a highlight of my Tuesdays. Well, thank you, 224. Yeah, I'm looking at the roster, and I am deciding whether guys are actually going to be able to play at Baylor or not. And if the answer is no, then I'm moving on and trying to find guys in the transfer portal to replace those guys. Trying to find better players for my team that can actually help the team next year. I'm not talking about high school recruiting. I know everyone is infatuated with that, and I understand why. But at the end of the day, for Dave Randa and the staff to be successful next year, it's going to come from the transfer portal. That's what I mean about, like, when you talk about, hey, Corey Gordon looks great, or this guy looks great. It's great, but, again, he's still not going to be where he needs to be for them to win games for maybe another couple years, you know, at at the highest level they want. Not him specifically, but just in general, like, when they talk about the guys they have, those are guys that are still going to take time, and they don't have time. They need, like, the guy who can play now, and – 
And that's where I think the big emphasis would be, would be attacking the portal and not doing Colorado or Texas State type moves, mm-hmm. but, you know, more than last year and more surefire things than last year and way more on the lines. And But you've got to encourage guys to leave too because you right. need spots. It, yeah. I hate saying that, but it's the reality of the situation right now. Yeah, we. so I'll put this as quickly as possible. Aranda and the coaching staff deserve plenty of blame. Like Jeff Grimes' play calls on Saturday, if you want to de- dive into that. But like with Matt Rule at one point in time, I'm saying this right now, the players have to ultimately make plays. Yes. Like, I mean – the coaches, you can hang them out to dry. You can blame them for whatever. They're not without fault. But ultimately, young or old, ready or not, like the players have to make plays. And you can't be out there dropping the ball on critical downs and throwing interceptions in the red zone and false start penalties every time you get to the 10. And like those things are just that execution part that he's talking about. And that's not scapegoating him or the staff. That's just like, no, you have to make plays. Like if you, the players aren't making plays – then that's where you know you have to start looking, and I think that was a big difference. Texas players were making plays, and Baylor's were simply not, and that's kind of been the case throughout the year. Bear Bucks, what is limiting explosive plays for this offense? This is college. There will always be four to five broken plays every game that can lead to easy TDs, and I feel like Baylor hasn't been able to capitalize on any in the past few weeks. Why is that? Is it a lack of speed and playmaking, or are we just missing Shapen badly? Thank y'all and sick him. Baylor can't run the football, and Baylor doesn't have Blake Shapen. Because in the past years with uh, under Jeff Grimes, the biggest thing that Baylor hit explosive plays from was play action, and they you can't do play action if you can't run the football. Pretty, yeah. I think it's pretty plain and simple. They have playmakers that can make plays deep downfield, but if you don't run it consistently enough and create explosives in the run game, then you're not giving your passing game enough opportunities to make plays in the play action, but also they are missing Shapin because we know his arm talent. We know what he can do when given time. Ginger Bear, I don't want to sound like all doom and gloom, but that blowout loss to Texas was gut-wrenching to watch. Is there anything hopeful on the horizon? What are the positives that y'all see in this disappointing season? I mean, the the hope is that Texas is really, really good and that you lost to a team that is borderline college football playoff contender, a Big 12 championship contender, and that going forward you're going to play a lot of teams that aren't nearly as good as Texas. Um, So that's a positive. I think the other positive is they might start to get healthy and might get their starting quarterback back, might finally have a nose tackle this year that weighs over 300 pounds. Like two. Yeah, two of them. You you might be able to get better as the season goes on, but that's going to require getting healthy. But, and those are also young guys still. You know, Trey Emery, still a young guy. Boykins, I mean, Boykins he's a, a young guy. So, again, got to grow up and got to play, just no matter what the situation is. But, yeah, I think getting healthy is a positive. Getting shaping back would be a positive. Playing teams that aren't Texas or Utah would be positives um, to look at. True Bear, is, if Blake's not ready to play yet, do you believe RJ should be given a chance to spark the offense with meaningful playing time? I think that if Sora Robertson goes out there and does not play well in the first quarter, I think you might have to make that. I mean, just to try something because it's not working what they're doing right now. Yeah, we didn't talk about RJ and Def because, I mean, it was garbage time and, and we're low on time here. But, yeah, I do think that, it, you know, yeah, if there's a – it's kind of like when they – didn't he play a series the, the week prior? LIU, yeah. And they just looked at him real briefly. But, yeah, I think if you're stagnant and it's like – you know, nothing's doing and you're just three and out in it or you're turning the ball over at the goal line, then, yeah, I think at some point you might have to just mix it up a little bit. Uh, Jay Bear 19 if you guys were the coaches, what changes would you make to the star position? Yeah, that is a position that I'm really struggling with because they obviously need to make some sort of adjustment. Corey Gordon's been okay. Uh, Bryson Jackson has really struggled in coverage and has been attacked numerous times. Um, 
You know, I think putting a cornerback there could be something that's intriguing. Maybe a Chateau Reed, who's a little bit bigger, might be able to hold up better against the run game. Um, maybe Tayshawn Wilson, the freshman, gets an opportunity to play, um, especially in passing down situations. Those would be some of the guys I would look at. The main guy that I would love to see there is Devin Lemire, but they simply can't move him because they need him at field safety. Um, but he's the guy who I actually think would probably be the, the best fit there. All right, three more, and we'll wrap it up. Sam19, I feel like I'm in the minority of Baylor fans who thinks with the Big 12 ring and Sugar Bowl trophy, Aranda's earned the benefit of the doubt for at least another year. He's consistently shown he's willing to make changes with the team and staff when things aren't working out. He clearly sees something special with this team that hasn't clicked yet. Where do you think the weak link is that needs to be changed? Yeah, I, I simply put it's this mentality that you can just recruit guys, develop them, and even if they're never going to play, it's, it's fine to have them taking up a roster spot. It, it's, to me, it's about... So toss person over player in some ways. But it's about roster management. Right. I mean, it simply is. And I'm not saying that you toss person over player. You're, I don't believe you're really doing that. Like, if a guy's not ever going to play at Baylor, then simply put, like, it's hard to keep that guy on your roster because you have opportunities to go bring in other guys while developing guys who might actually be able to play and be contributors at Baylor. I know it sounds harsh. It sounds terrible. I understand that. But, like... If you want to win at the highest level, you can't just keep guys who aren't going to play. And so to me, it's that. But it's also about more than just roster management. It is identifying guys who are going to be really, really good. Because going into this year, I think there was optimism about some of these young guys taking big steps forward. But I think as we've seen this year, a lot of those guys were not ready to take that step forward. And you should have brought in transfers who were older and had more experience. Yeah, they need some guys ready to step up and lead and be dogs right away and not like puppies that they're just – you need a couple more years, and, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to toss per- person over player. I just mean that, like, that whole idea of you've got, like, all this time to just develop young men as, like, this whole package, and it's like, no, you need to win football games. Yeah. You know, I, that doesn't mean sacrificing person over player right. and bringing in a bunch of, like, you know, future criminals or anything. That just means that, like, this whole idea of just this lengthy building, and you know, it's like, no, like, there's got to be some urgency here, and, um, you know... I don't know. So I don't mean toss person over player, but I think you kind of get what I'm saying. But also, you asked where's the weak link. I really don't think there's a weak link on this staff. I really don't. I think it's more just an identity and just an evaluation of the roster that maybe can be adjusted. And CyberBear chimed in on on Sam's question um, and said that the – you know, those were his. Okay, oh. you can chime in on his thoughts there, but he's talking about the Big Twelve Championship, which again I do give credit to Dave Aranda for. Yeah. There were a lot of guys that he brought in, recruited, and a lot of guys he developed. So I mean, it's a different argument, but I just would say most of those guys had their best years with Aranda from his development, and then also let's not forget that Apuika, Al Walcott, um, Abram Smith moving to running back when he wasn't playing running back, um, Drew Estrada, Dylan Doyle. Like there were a lot of guys that Aranda brought in to construct this roster so i i do give him a lot of credit for that so cyber i see and appreciate you and uh, you don't need to shut up we we thank you for your comments golden green finally here uh, to close us out now that we've hit the four game mark do you know of anybody hitting the portal to preserve a year of eligibility uh not that i know of yet i mean we might know soon but nothing right now we'll report it when we're able to and when we get information like that so we'll see yeah, I mean, we're going to see some roster changes one way or the other uh, here over the next few months. Like, that's a given now in this day and age of college football, and particularly with their struggles. I mean, it just seems like, you know, something's going to give guys already, you know, not happy with their playing time or their situation, and then them not being happy with guys playing or their situations and so forth. So, 
yeah, not quite there yet, but uh, we will be all over that when the time comes. And uh, that could be really at any time now at this point, uh, moving into month two of the season. So there you have it. Uh, appreciate everybody's questions. And uh, didn't get to everything or get to be as in-depth as we would like uh, due to time constraints, but there's plenty of basketball schedule talk over on the website and um, articles about that and then more, of course, about just the discussions that we're having about the football team in general and recruiting and all that stuff. So, Grace, anything before we go here? Uh, do you want to run through predictions really quick? Oh, we still have... Yeah, oh. we got to go. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, then nothing else really. We just have, you know, obviously the premium side of things. Be sure to check that out on Sick of 365. All kinds of news, notes, information. And outside of that, just be sure to check out 365 Sports Monday through Friday. Let's just predict Baylor UCF. Who do you have? Um, If Blake Shapin plays, I'll take Baylor. If he doesn't play, I'm taking UCF by two or three scores. Either way, I'm taking UCF, uh, but if Blake Shapin plays, that will definitely help. So there we go. We're both picking the Knights uh, unless Blake Shapin plays on Grayson's side. But uh, we'll talk about it next week with you. Do appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Craig Smoke. He's Grayson Grudhafer. This has been the BearCast on Sikkim365.com.